And I think there's another song too, as I was thinking about it, as we were singing that, uh, bringing, bringing in the sheaves. Yeah, bringing in the sheaves. That was another one that I think maybe that's why I thought this one was about sheets, was because of bringing in the sheaves. I would always sing bringing in the sheets. And uh, so I thought that was what we were talking about this whole time. So, well, anyways, Psalm 149, Psalm 149 tonight. Second to last Psalm. Can you believe it? We've nearly made it to Psalm 150. Uh, Not to be morbid or anything. I sure hope I don't die this week. You know, it would be horrible to get all the way to Psalm 149 and then not finish Psalms. That would be horrible. Uh, But anyways, Psalm 149. Let's read it together. Beginning verse number one. The Bible says, Praise ye the Lord. Sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise in the congregation of saints. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with a timbrel and harp. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Let the saints be joyful in glory, and let them sing aloud upon their beds. Let the, let the high praises of God be in their mouth, and a two-edged sword in their hand, to execute vengeance upon the heathen, and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains, and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written, this honor hath all his saints. Praise ye the Lord. Now we're going to talk about that tonight, and uh, the, very much a battle psalm. Uh, we are in a battle as well, and it's going on all around us every single day. Uh, we battle against the forces of Satan, and we don't even realize it. And Satan never surrenders, but one day he's going to be defeated, amen? And uh, one day he will not win, and in fact he'll lose very greatly. But until then, we have to keep on fighting. And the devil knows he cannot defeat God, so his strategy then instead is to try to destroy God's people. And so he constantly fights us. And like many of the Psalms, uh, Psalm 149 reminds us that we're at war. And we do not know the author or the specific situation that inspired the writing of this Psalm uh, for the psalmist, but however, the general setting can definitely be seen. And perhaps shortly after a great victory, or uh, uh, perhaps maybe uh, just before they go out to battle. Uh, But... It's important for us to remember that pretty much all of Israel's wars were holy wars. Uh, They not only were defending their land and their their country, but they were defending their God as well. And uh, as God brought the victory after victory, uh, they were used by God to bring those victories. Our spiritual warfare today is no different. Israel fought against flesh and blood using physical weapons, but we fight against spiritual forces with spiritual weapons. 2 Corinthians 10.4 tells us, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Ephesians 6.12, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Ephesians 6.17, just a few verses down, says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. We take those spiritual warfare, spiritual uh, weapons to fight this battle. 
Now, the point is still the same. Like Israel, we've still, we seek to fight against and to stop these forces who seek to destroy God's people and God's purposes. And Psalm 149 is also prophetic, and these uh, verses 7 and 9 clearly seem to point to the second coming of Christ, too, the picture of what happens there. But perhaps the psalm prophetically points to a time of praise in heaven when we all gather around our captain of hosts, and just before Christ returns with his saints to conquer the enemy, and we sing the praises of God uh, just before we see the victory completed and before our eyes. And then Israel will rejoice in God and be joyful in their king, as the psalm says. But until then, we as soldiers of Christ must not uh, uh, forget the importance of praising the one who brings the battle, who w- brings the victory. And even as, we, uh, even as we go on by faith and we praise the Lord by faith, we haven't seen the victory yet, but we know it's coming. So by faith and praising him for that victory, it's a step of faith. And before the battle uh, of, at the end of days even begins, we can begin to praise him for what he's going to do and what we've seen him, done, uh, seen him do in the past as well. And prayer and God's word are vital for our warfare, but praise has a definite place too. And we see two main sections here in this psalm, but I, I want to point out three points out of this. Uh, number one, the first point I want to show you is praise the Lord publicly. Praise the Lord publicly. Look at verse one again. It says, praise ye the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise in the congregation of saints. There in the public, in the congregation we do this. Let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name in the dance. Let them sing praises unto him with timbrel and harp. And for the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Now, God's people were gathered together before they go into battle and uh, for one particular purpose, to praise and worship him who will bring the victory. And this isn't just something for Israel to do in ancient times. Uh, we too need to be prepared to make a practice of praise uh, as we face the battles that this life brings our, our way. And we too are to assemble with other believers to praise the Lord publicly. Hebrews 10.25 reminds us, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the matter of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as we see the day approaching. Even more as we see the coming of Christ coming closer and closer, we're supposed to be meeting together and encouraging one another and seeking to praise Him as a corporate body. And this time when we do that, we need to, letter A, sing Him a new song. Sing Him a new song. The Bible makes that, uh, uses that phrase multiple times, especially in the psalm. But verse 1, he says, Praise ye the Lord, sing unto the Lord a new song, and his praise in the congregation of saints. And God's chosen people gathered together to sing a new song to their God. And one pastor pointed out that a new song suggests a new situation. In other words, the previous song that was sung before the previous battle will not do. Uh, we need a new song. Uh, We must come before him fresh and new and ready to praise him. And he'll bring salvation in this battle just as he's done before. If we are dependent upon him and yielded to him just as we were before. However, we cannot be dependent upon yesterday's graces. It's an encouragement to us to keep trusting, to keep fighting, to keep praising. However, Yesterday's song is not sufficient for today's battle. 
So we sing him a new song, and we praise him in the congregation of the saints. We come together to gain our strength from the Lord, and our fellowship with one another gives us strength as well. And so we sing him a new song. Secondly, we rejoice in our creator, verse number two. He says, let Israel rejoice in him that made him. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. <coughs> this time of gathering was a festive time, no doubt, as they were rejoicing in what the Lord would do. The people rejoiced in God, the God who made them, their creator, but also they rejoiced in their true king. Like as he says here, the children of Zion be joyful in their king. I get the sense that this speaks not of only to the creation of their bodies, but also the creation of their nation as well. He has made them a people. He had formed their nation and chosen them specifically as his chosen people for a specific purpose. That through them, he could give the, wor the world his word and his son. Israel was created to be a theocracy and a shining example to the whole world. And they were led and ruled by God. But it, they came to a point where they sought a king to rule them. When God did give them a king, he directed that king to follow him in all of their ways. And they were still to be led by God through a theocracy, even though it was a theocratic monarchy. I just, just coined that term, I think. I don't know. But, uh, you know, whatever the case is, you know, they were supposed to, the king was to lead them by following God. Reminds me of Paul, I think it's Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ. However, too many kings went astray doing their own wills. And this invited judgment on their lives and on the lives of all of Israel. How true that is for us today as well. When we yield to God as king of our lives and follow after his will, life is blessed and victory is secure. When we follow after our own will instead, Judgment is just around the corner unless we repent. As we rejoice publicly in our congregation, let's remind each other and stir each other's hearts to sing to him a new song and rejoice and worship him as our creator and in our king. Let's yield to him. And then thirdly, we praise him fervently. Verse 3, it says, Let them praise his name in the dance and let them sing praises unto him uh, with the timbrel and the harp. This looks quite different than our Baptist churches. <laughs> and that's okay. The point is that we're, we ought to be, uh, the point isn't that we ought to be dancing in the aisles. Okay? Or banging on a tambourine, which is the meaning of the timbrel. The point is the fervency of our praise. Besides this dancing uh, that is talked about in this verse, uh, this, this kind of dancing never, didn't look like the dancing that we see today. <laughs> it was sensual type of dance. This was more like uh, a skipping or jumping for joy. It's an outward expression of an inward exuberance of praise. They just can't contain the exuberance in their heart. And it comes out. Our hearts ought to be so full of praise that it just can't help to come out somehow. Amen. Why do we praise him publicly? Well, verse 4 tells us. For the Lord taketh pleasure in his people. He will beautify the meek with salvation. Boy, what a verse. What a phrase. The Lord taketh pleasure in his people. 
And it's the Lord's pleasure. It's for the Lord's pleasure, not ours. Boy, that takes a whole different spin on our worship services, doesn't it? Amen? It's because he has saved us. And our natural response ought to be to praise him. The Lord delights in his people. I love what commentator John Phillips points out from the book of Genesis. He says that God commits just roughly 4% of the book of Genesis to the creation of the world and all that is therein, and then continues by devoting 25% of the book to tell us about Abraham, 25% to tell us about Jacob, and another 25% to tell us about Joseph. He continues and concludes that this is the Holy Spirit's way, he feels, of showing us that God finds pleasure in his people, the pinnacle of his creation, to think that God derives his pleasure in the likes of us, he says. What an astonishing fact. Amen? The fact that we bring pleasure to God when we obey him and praise him the way that we ought to, with pure hearts. God's people worship him not only because he delighted in them, but also because he crowned the meek or humble with salvation. In other words, God's people saying about their saving or delivering of his deliverance from their enemies, giving them the victory over them. They humbled themselves by depending upon him, not their own military strength, not their own military might, uh, not in their horses or chariots, but in the God of all creation and their king. And he beautified their humility, this verse says, with salvation, with victory. The Israelites understood this truth, and when we clothe ourselves with humility, the Lord will adorn us with a victor's crown. 1 Peter 5, 6 tells us, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. If you just humble yourself before God, he'll take care of you. The church is also to come together to praise and worship the God of our salvation. We come together to exalt God. We bring a new song before him. We should never let it become routine or stale, amen? We need to lift up our hearts with fresh praise. We come together to worship our Creator and our King. We acknowledge His Lordship over us and yield to Him in humility. And we fervently praise Him. Some are more expressive than others in praise, that's, that's for sure, and that's okay. You know, sometimes we're not used to the way that other people praise him. Uh, when we were in Tennessee, we were at a church that was a praising church for sure. No doubt about it. They were uh, Smoky Mountain, uh, I don't want to call them hillbillies, but uh, they, were, they were Smoky Mountain church, that's for sure. There were some that would let loose in their praise, and there were others that were more subdued. And, uh, but all through, no matter who it was, I didn't get a sense that there was one fake in the midst, in the middle of all, any of them. It, well, none of it was manufactured or unreal. It felt real. No matter how we do it, we need to praise Him publicly. Amen. Sometimes all we can get out is a holy grunt. <laughs> hey, whatever we can get. Amen. Praise the Lord. But also verse 5 kind of hints at something else real quickly. Verse 5 tells us to praise the Lord privately as well. Number 2, 
Number verse 5, he says, Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud upon their beds. In addition to public worship, we as God's children need to praise him privately as well. No matter where we are or what we're doing, we need to take the time and the thought to praise the Lord. And praise is not just meant to be a Sunday morning thing. We're supposed to take it with us, amen? And praise them all week long, every day, all day. Let them sing aloud upon their bed, it says. Let it be the last thought you think before sleep takes over. May it be the first thing that we think when we wake up in our beds in the morning. The person who will praise God publicly, but does not think to praise Him privately, you have to wonder if He's praising Him for show. The person who will praise God privately but refuses to praise Him publicly, you have to wonder if they're ashamed of Him. The focus is too much on themselves either way. When, we all fo- when our focus ought to be on Him always. What an honor and a privilege it is to be God's people. Amen? The object of His delight, as this ver- these verses say. We ought to really and readily rejoice in his goodness, and his mercy, and his salvation. Not just in public services, but in the quietness of our own hearts and devotions to God. Psalm 77, 6 tells us, I, can, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I commune with mine own heart, and my spirit made diligent search. Psalm 119, 62 tells us, At midnight I will ri- rise to give thanks unto thee because of thy righteous judgments even all throughout the night, amen? Well, if you wake up in the middle of the night, uh, start praising the Lord. Start thanking Him. Be thankful for the things that God has given you. Start talking to Him. Boy, the devil won't like that. He'll put you to sleep fast. But use the time wisely. Then number three, praise as you prepare for battle. Praise the Lord as you prepare for battle. beginning verse 6, it says, Let the high praises of God be in their mouth, and a two-edged sword in their hand, to execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written. This honor have all his saints. Praise ye the Lord. This preparation for warfare that it talks about here, it reminds me of our need to prepare as well it's taught to us in Ephesians chapter 6. In verse 10 it tells us, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that ye may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith, wherewith ye shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. Take on the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying always, with all prayers and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. 
Our preparation is not only in the armor we wear, but also in the praise and readiness to depend upon him as well. In there, the prayer is involved in it all, right alongside the sword of the Spirit and the shield of faith. The enemies of Israel were not just attacking the Israeli people, but they were trying to overthrow the purpose that God had for them. So the warriors were challenged to praise the Lord as they prepared for warfare. See, first of all, in these verses, letter A, by taking up the sword of spirit, the sword of the spirit, they are prepared for warfare by taking up the sword of the spirit. Verse six: Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. They weren't just going to battle with only praise in their mouth, but also a sword in their hand. Amen. God could have won the victory with just a praise in their mouth. He created the whole world with just a, his, his speaking it into existence. Why could he not use the people's praise to win the victory? But he chose for them to use the sword. The warriors of God were ready to wield their two-edged sword. Very deadly weapon that needed to be wielded carefully and thoughtfully. Following their training uh, 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 that they had learned. Or else more damage could have been done to themselves than their enemies. The Bible tells us how the word of God is likened to a two-edged sword. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the hearts and intents of the, uh, the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We utilize the word of God, our, our true weapon against the forces of darkness all around us. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5 says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God, to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations, and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Every, bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We do that through the word of God. We replace the lie with the truth. Not only did God's people take up the sword, but they went into battle, letter B, trusting God to judge. Trusting God to judge. Verses 7 through 9, at least the first part of verse 9, it says, To execute vengeance upon the heathen and punishments upon the people, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute upon them the judgment written. Israel's warriors went out to battle with the confidence that God would bring them the victory. They just needed to go forth and obey. The Lord would judge their enemies. Those who stand opposed to the will of God and the people of God will be judged. They marched into battle on a, on a mission. Verse 7 tells us to execute vengeance upon the foreign nations of the people who threatened Israel, the kingdom of God. Verse 8 tells us they were to defeat and imprison the world's wicked leaders who oppressed others. Verse 9 tells us to execute God's judgment written in his word against their enemies. The Lord had promised to give, them, uh, give Israel the victory over the nations that occupied the promised land. It was a promise from them that he would help them. 
Deuteronomy 7, verses 1 and 2 says, When the Lord thy God shall bring thee into the land whither, whither thou goest to possess it, and cast out many nations before thee, the Hittites and the Gergesites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than thou. And when the Lord thy God shall deliver them before thee, thou shalt smite them and utterly destroy them. And thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor show mercy unto them. They continue to fight the battle even today simply because they did not complete what God had told them to do and drive out the inhabitants. The war that's going on right now is a direct result of that disobedience. We too need to take up our sword of the Spirit and run into battle, not away from the battle. We go forth in obedience and faith and trust in God. Trust that he will judge our enemies. We go into battle. Thirdly, letter C, realizing the honor we have to fight. Verse 9 says, to execute upon them the judgment written. Then look at this phrase that says, this honor have all his saints. Praise you the Lord. What an honor it was for the Israelite warriors who fought for the Lord. Got to take a, have a part in the victory. What an honor it is for his saints, the saints of God today, to battle the forces of Satan by God's power and go forth doing what God wants us to do. God's word challenges us to go forth in, the, in his power, to put on the whole armor of God that he has provided us in the fight. Again, Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 13 tells us, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God and that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Oh, how important it is that we wear the entire armor of God. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, verse 12 says, but against principalities and against powers, against rulers of darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand. We pick up the word of God, our two-edged sword, actually better than any two-edged sword. The God, uh, God's word declares it that it's sharper, and we fight. And just as Jesus defeated Satan with the word of God, so we, too, must attack with God's word when we face temptation. But we have to have the ammunition, amen? Jesus knew the word of God. He knew it well enough to quote it to the, God, to the devil. We have to make sure we bring our ammunition. What good does it do to bring a gun into the battle if our bullets are left behind? Read the word of God. Memorize the word of God. Meditate on the word of God. and Use the word of God to fight the battle. One day Jesus will destroy his enemies with the sword of his mouth, the Bible says. His mighty word. Revelation 19.15 says, And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath and wrath of Almighty God. Verse 21, in chapter 19, verse 21, says that the remnant were slain with the sword of him that sat upon the horse, which sword proceedeth out of his mouth, and all the fowls were filled with their flesh. 
We can live the victorious Christian life if we'll depend upon and use the word of God in our lives. We battle daily whether we realize it or not. We fight with a confidence that we will be victorious through him. And by faith, take our steps forward in the battle. God has already made his judgment and he's already pronounced the sentence upon Satan and all of his forces. They know their end already. They cried out to Jesus that, they, that he's coming to them too soon. <laughs> Before the time, they know what there's ahead of them. They'll be banished with all evildoers to the lake of fire forever, never to attack us again. Amen? What a wonderful thought. We are already conquerors in Christ. Psalm 44, 5 tells us, Through thee will we push down our enemies. Through thy name we will tread them under that rise up against us. Romans 8, 37 says, a very familiar verse, I think. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. We have the victory already. We just need to march forward in faith and in obedience. We can live in confidence that if we yield to him, he'll prevail. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ. Hey, that's a great promise right there, isn't it? Now thanks be to God, which always causeth us to triumph in Christ, and maketh manifest the savor of his knowledge by us in every place. Let's praise the Lord publicly. He's worthy of it. Let's praise the Lord privately, all day, every day. And let's praise him as we prepare for the battle and get busy for Christ. Amen? Well, let's take some prayer requests and uh, we'll come to take these things before the Lord today.